0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Elizabeth Cobbs. She holds the Melbourne Glasscock Chair in American History at Texas A&M University. Uh, She's a prize-winning historian, novelist, and documentary uh, filmmaker. She's the author of The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers, American Umpire, The Hamilton Affair, and The Tubman Command. And her newest book, available now, is called fearless women, feminist patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Welcome, Lisa.
1: Thank you.
2: Well, and so before we begin, I just want to first uh, say something and give a shout out to my friend Elaine, who's an avid podcast or uh, an avid listener of our podcast, not just an avid podcast listener. So she actually bought your book on Harriet Tubman because she's she loves Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman is like her favorite historical figure ever. So she was really excited to get into that. So I want to just, you know, shout out to Elaine. Okay. So as we usually start, I'm going to read a passage from Lisa's book. So Lisa wrote, satirist Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's Travels, urged young women in 1723 to cultivate their intelligence with. Without which it is impossible to acquire or preserve the friendship and esteem of a wise man who wanted a true friend through every stage of his life. John Adams enjoyed such a partnership with Abigail. For women of that area of the era, it took extraordinary strength to swim against the tide. Mm. Abigail Adams scrutinized the books of leading thinkers for encouraging words and stubbornly insisted, as she put it, that females inherit an equal share of curiosity with the other sex. She pointed out to a friend that James Fordyce acknowledged the most conscientious men are in general those who have the greatest. Disregard for women of reputation and talents despite views that raise hackles today and despite views that raise hackles today enlightenment writers represented new ways of thinking abigail believed indeed depictions of women as vain but pleasant dimwits were dimwits were in some respects a genuine improvement so can we now get into a little bit about the history about uh, feminist thought and especially now since you started the book with abigail adams and uh, abigail bailey so can we talk about a little bit about their lives and how they were in some sense revolutionaries and kind of trendsetters right especially in in terms of what was sort of established and what the norms were around just the relationships with the different genders at the times and espe- at the time. And especially when we think about the expectations for women then.
1: Yeah. That's such a, you know, such I thank you for coming to that quote. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, we're just terrible fools because I mean, we, you love, you, you search for a phrase sometimes and sometimes, you know, most of the time you're just out there grinding it out, but every now and then you go and go, you think, no, that's it vain but pleasant dimwits was the way women were thought of when by by many men most men not all not all of course right. um, even someone like john adams you know he uh, he would say you know well i like to talk to you abigail but you know our son thomas he just talks with girls and what's he gonna learn there you know and then he goes oh, oh, oh i'm not supposed to say that oops so it's so funny all the things we think of as being so modern the a woman saying, "You know, I, I really don't like how that sounds," and a guy saying, "Oh well, don't be such a, don't be so prickly." And and you know, we look back now and we think that um, you know everything we're about is you know some we just we are inventing. Even like feminism, which really is invented, I think historically speaking, um, in the United States at the time of the American Revolution. Now even today, we kind of go back and forth. Well, is that a person who's a feminist or they're not a feminist? And like like there's some you know, um, biochemistry definition that if we get all the molecules lined up right, you know, that is a feminist. It's not. Just Mm -hmm. has always meant what Abigail said, which is we should not be treated as the vassals of your sex. You know, vassals, not a modern word. Peasants, slaves, serfs, whatever, underlings, you know, uber-mention, under-mention, whatever. Um, And so Abigail was really that. And it starts here, friends, because of that first idea that you can have a broad, popular government, that one man should not be over all other men. So what I found so fascinating to think about, and I, I just think it's really true, the more I look at it, is that the attack on patriarchy starts with men attacking patriarchy because mm. second sons and third sons would say, well, why is why do I get less because I'm just I'm not the firstborn?" Or, you know, barons saying to King John back in the Magna Carta days, well, wait a minute, you know, why is your blood, your royal blood, so much more important than mine? So those that's where it starts. And then for someone like Abigail Adams, she's she's a smart cookie, very smart. And she goes, Well, if not one all one man can rule all men, then why should all men rule all women? What's there's no real again, what's the justification for that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, just because I want to kind of get into what their lives were like, I really appreciated the, the first chapter, especially. Um, So what was so interesting about that is that you had these two contrasts with Abigail Adams and Abigail Bailey. So with Adams, obviously, she had a much more pleasant relationship with her husband, as opposed to obviously, in this case, the contrast, uh, the different relationship that Abigail Bailey had with her husband. So kind of can we talk about how both women came to sort of a uh, feminist or their feminist ideals, and also kind of how their backgrounds were contrasted with one another, and maybe how their backgrounds even, inform some of their thinking?
1: Well, yeah, in each chapter, one thing I've tried to do is I have what I call a person in my mind, I think of as the face of feminism, somebody Mm. that said something or did something that we today would recognize as an effort to stand up for the rights of women, or for equality as a principle. And then I always have somebody who's like, well, like, why should we care? Because I think that there is a bit of this. um, And you see this in all movements where there's people who are in a more privileged situation look back and say, well, are those people just kind of whining? You know, are they just like, you know, I broke my fingernail, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, oops. And, and so I think it's really important. It helps us if we understand why people of the day thought laws should change. We need to look at what was happening in the day that allowed even people then to go, you know what, that's not right. You know, that, now that, that's not right, and I can see that. So Abigail Bailey, to your point, my new friend, mm-hmm. um, is is a person who suffered from what were known as the coverture laws, which affected all married women, which was that by the laws of England, which then become the laws of the new United States, women ceased to exist. I know that sounds like weird. Like you're like, wait a minute, hello, I don't, I don't think they ceased to exist. No, actually, in law, they ceased to exist when they became married. They were covered. As that's why it's called, coverture, they were mm-hmm. covered by their husband's legal identity. They could not even they could not even get in trouble by themselves. Like if no. a woman broke the law, they'd say, "Oh well, you know, let's go talk to her husband because we know her husband put her up to it." A woman had no way of doing anything. So Abigail Bailey was a woman who had seventeen children, and her husband, who was a Revolutionary War veteran and well well esteemed man, you know, a major uh, in the American Revolutionary Army was also a tyrant at home. And he abused his wife and he abused his children and he you know, was a sexual predator. He he um, forced, we think, she testified um, women that worked in their household. But then when he got in trouble for that with the township, he then turned to um, assaulting their daughters, at least one. And um, now the thing is, if Abigail Bailey had said, okay, I'm, you know, enough of this, I'm divorcing you, under the laws of coverture, the husband owned all the children. All the children belonged to the husband. So if she got a separation from her husband, he would take all of the girls as well as all of the boys, and they would be even more completely under his control. Also, if she tried to just like go to the cops or the colonial version of the cops, what could happen there? And what you know, what the law read in some places was that if the if uh, it was shown that the father had um, sexually assaulted a daughter, that the daughter would be culpable too. And could wow. even to prison sentences, even death, eye hanging. And in some places, you know, we've all heard about Hester Prynne, had to wear the scarlet letter on her, on her blouse for the rest of her life. An incest victim would have to wear the letter I sewn onto her, or his blouse for the rest of their life to show that this person had participated in this. So the laws were so cruel, you know, not intentionally, but were, And so that was the kind of thing that Abigail Adams, we never met Abigail Bailey that we know, but that's what she was referring to when she said, and she even said, kind of to your point, Alan. she said, "Um, I know not all men are this way. Most men are not this way. But why put it in law that a man who is a tyrant can without, with impunity is what Abigail Adams said. Our foremother, Abigail Adams said, why let them treat us with impunity?
0: it's insane to me if i'm not mistaken as well um even if her husband passed away the the property wouldn't go to her right it would go to the children right you should even have that kind of right yeah uh,
1: yeah yeah, craziness leons because think of this in that era up through the mid-19th century until like the second second quarter last quarter of the 19th century if a man died all of his property went to the children. Now, laws have been liberalized by Americans so that they took away early on, this was Thomas Jefferson, primogeniture, which was the idea that the first son got, you know, got all the lion's share of everything. So they they'd even that out around the time of the American Revolution. Shortly thereafter, state laws changed to allow all children to share equally, but not the wife. So a woman had no right to live in her own home upon hmm. the death of her husband. Now, undoubtedly, many children would have said, "Oh no, you know, stay," or "I'll move my wife and children in, and mom, you can have this garret in the attic, and maybe do some cooking for us." Uh, you know, who knows? Everybody, every family is different, but the law—and that's what we're talking here—the law treated these women as beyond their shelf life. You know, mm-hmm. wait out the rest yeah. of your life on our sufferance.
2: I really appreciated Abigail Bailey's story just from a more personal perspective. So a lot of what she went through sort of reminded me about kind of my own upbringing. Uh, I don't really necessarily love talking about this, but it, it just, so in terms of the way our culture is, it's actually, or well, at least of the way it was, it's not so much anymore here in the U S it's very similar to uh, the way kind of, uh, I, I hate this stuff. Uh, okay. So it was very similar to the way Soviet, uh, the Soviet union culture was. So a lot of the way sort of the women in our kind of uh, sort of communities grew up was, it was pretty much in this sort of way that Abigail Bailey grew up and sort of the understanding was there was a lot of blaming themselves and there was a lot of, uh, pretty much shaming themselves and obviously the community would do so in in turn too right or you can even argue that the community did it and it was turned inwardly so when i was growing up with my mom i mean she had just a series of relationships which is a bunch of bad guys so i had uh, what's a stepfather who was a pretty bad dude he was pretty much in command of the house Uh, it was pretty much his way or the highway there was nothing that anybody could really say to him um and then just a lot of the women in our family they grew up in the same ways so when i'm reading abigail bailey's story so not as intense i would say as my own childhood but not that Similar either. So you kind of see some of the, the sort of remnants of that or some of the reflections of that uh, in, in her story of what I went through. And so it's also very similar. There's a lot of uh, explaining away. There's a lot of excuses. There's a lot of uh, thinking, well, you know, if I just get better, or if I just shape up, you know, maybe my husband will finally see me and accept me. Maybe he will finally love me. So it's, so it's so, I guess, interesting and kind of scary that she went through this, especially as the story kind of goes on in the chapter. And she's, you know, kind of near death in some ways with him where he takes her to on this trip and that's obviously I want to get into that because it's a great part of the story and she's terrified right and I remember thinking that my mom went through the same thing with my stepdad so there was a point where essentially she did finally have enough and this is and it became really bad because for him he just decided well you know you're not gonna leave I'm not gonna allow that to happen I actually need you right I'm not gonna get into the specifics of why uh, just because it's a legal thing and uh, you know who knows where that could go but whatever so he's like I'm not gonna let you leave essentially and then so she said well I you know I need to do this for me and my kid I can't I don't, can't have you around anymore And yeah, man, and the way the system works, and this is something I definitely want to touch on a little bit later, but the way the system works is just, it's not, it's not really great here now going, you know, from the Soviet Union to the US, it's not really great toward women still. And here's how. So my stepdad at the time, uh, he sort of, um, he went to the police and he said, well, you know, my wife hit me, right? And he had a scratch on his face. And so because there was a domestic violence incident before, what happened was that actually my mom called the cops on him. And so because there was a point where it was like, he got really out of control and we didn't know what to do. So my mom calls the cops. Right, the cops come. Uh, Essentially, we kind of explained it away, and we're like, ah, it's not really that big of a deal. You don't have to arrest him; just let him stay here, whatever. Right. So what happens is at that point, my mom the second time. So now he goes to the cops. The cops actually arrest her the second time. And so the question was, well, why are you arresting her? There's no. First of all, this didn't happen. But fine, you know, maybe you know, point aside. There's no evidence of that happening. And so they say, well, it doesn't necessarily matter because there was a domestic incident before. And my point was like, yes, but she was the one who called on him. And the cop says to me, he says, well, it doesn't actually matter who called on who because it was a domestic incident. Now we have to actually book her and keep her overnight. And this was over the weekend. Yeah. So just really, really wild stuff. And so just, again, we'll maybe touch on this a little bit later, because I really want to touch on Abigail, uh, Abigail Bailey's story is that it's so insane how the word, the laws work against women, because here's this person who's reaching out to the authorities and saying, Hey, I need help. And then in turn, they say, well, it sounds like you're actually part of the problem, but yeah, but just going back now to Abigail,
0: do you want to just super quick jump to that point? It's Interesting that that I mean not interesting, but I should say that things like this are still an issue. Right? Yeah, this is not just like in the context of you know uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s, yeah. or anything like that. These are still modern day issues, right? right? Like um, even these roles that uh, some women are still in, for example, like that tradition. Which by the way, there's nothing wrong with having that. Let's say traditional housewife role, or maybe you know, uh, Oh, as, as though, as the woman, you know, I'm going to do these tasks. And as the man, you do this, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But on another level, it's just like coming from that culture. Right. Like also, uh, I have a sort of like a, uh, Ukrainian Russian sort of background. My own mom, uh, also was just sort of, I wouldn't say subservient, but it's almost as if like, uh, I, I, it's not like she exercised her, um, sovereignty and trying to maybe, uh, get her own job or something like that. She just kind of took that traditional role yes. and it's almost like imposed, uh, essentially it is. still in, in that culture. Yeah. Um, and it is,
2: and, and so the women in that culture, I mean, just I, cause I want everybody to know this, that it's incredibly hard to start working because there's nobody actually pushing you to go to school. That wasn't even necessarily a thing in their time. Well, yes. you know,
1: the um, I mean, one of the points I make in this first chapter is I tried to create a scaffolding in the book to show how women gradually acquired rights in the United States and in many countries, but the focus is on the US. But those first rights, the first two chapters, one is the right to learn, like literally just the right to go to high school. And the second chapter is the right to speak. That is literally speak in the company of men, literally open your mouth and say something other than alleluia, because by the way, you were allowed to sing in church, but not anything else. So those are two rights that women don't have in many countries today. Malala, the famous face of female resistance in our time, was a girl who was shot in the head because she wanted to do what Abigail Adams fought so hard for, which is the right of girls to go to high school. And the right to speak is something that women still do not have in many countries where they have to be veiled and are not allowed out in public. So it's recent friends as you know and you know from your own families and I by the way relate to that Alan if you read if you got a chance to read my book all the way which is rather long all the way to the end I mean I had a family situation too very similar where which you know I think me too is letting us all know listen if we want to get a first abuse free generation then the generation that we're all a part of right now has to just start saying hey this happens Happens to everybody or not everybody, fortunately, thank goodness, not everybody. happens to a lot. And, you know, how can we, how can we deal with that? How can we just stand up unashamed and say, as you just did, as I'm doing now, um, you know, this is part of our histories, but yeah. you know, it is old, it's old stuff. And we're still all wrestling it with as a species.
2: Yeah. And so yeah. can we get into a little bit about Abigail, Abigail Bailey and then her story, because that was so fascinating, just how she got through it. And it's sort of the sort of type of Sophie's choice that she had to make toward the end.
1: Yeah. So, oh, my gosh, this is so hard because a perpetrator of violence in a family is always trying to make the other people look like it was their idea, their fault, that they're collaborators, that they didn't speak up fast enough. That meant that they're just as guilty. And so like your mom, right? you know, you reported, but you didn't report it in the right way at the right time with the right detail, etc. And so suddenly the person who's the primary victim really becomes the person who's on the spot. So Abigail Bailey, um, her husband, after she kicks him out, she can't really kick him out though, keep in mind, because even if they get a divorce, uh, again, all the children, all the property go to him. So she kicks him out, but her, her daughter doesn't want to testify because her daughter, by the way, probably doesn't want to go into a court trial where she could end up with a letter I on her shirt for the rest of her life, or maybe in trouble. Because in those situations, the child, if the child did not, the instant uh, an incident happened, report it and go to the officials, the child was considered as culpable. And even then there's a question of like, how hard did you resist? One girl in um I was Massachusetts in colonial Massachusetts, went to a trial and uh, you know, her arm was almost broken, but she said, well, you know, I almost broke my arm, but I consented in the end. Now that word, I consented in the end, meaning upon pain of death, I yielded to this thing that someone was trying to do to me. They threw out the case. Well, you consented. Okay. I guess we got that. So anyway, Abigail, Batt- Bailey's so wonderful though, because she, he kidnaps her. He he takes her. He promises some, you know, well, I'm going to give you property if you go with me on this trip somewhere. And he basically kidnaps her and takes her, you know, 250 miles, you know, on horseback. And they have one horse and they get there in some backwater, New York, upstate town with like three tree stumps and a bazillion standing trees. And she catches smallpox there and almost dies. But then he says, I'm going to go back. They're from New Hampshire. I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to finish up our business what he's gonna but that what that means is that he can put the kids out for hire so his his prerogative as the sole um custodial parent is to put the kids out to apprenticeships and to jobs where he can collect their wages until they're 18 and they become his and he's going to go back and take care of all of that and and he leaves her behind and she by hook and by crook and she's still sick from smallpox recovering she gets on a horse alone woman with no money i think she said she had 28 and a half cents cuz i guess you you get hay pennies back there half pennies and uh, and she rides 230 miles back to new hampshire by herself crossing streams going through the mountains trying to find her way and she gets there and surprises him and they go she goes with her brothers to now to the to the sheriff or police or constable and um and they force him but it, And it's all, it, the wonderful thing to see, guys, is that all these men want to help her. You know, the John Adamses, the average men of the world, they don't want to see a woman in this situation, but the law is not in her favor. And the attorney they go to says, well, gosh, you know, yeah, it sounds bad, <laughs> but, you know, really is nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. And then he says something that makes her realize that it doesn't mean, though, that she can't use tricks because that's Mm -hmm. all women had or their supposed wiles, feminine wiles. So they can lie and they can cheat and they can use subterfusion. That's what's granted to women since law is not on their side. The custom is if you are servile enough or tricky enough, you know, passive aggressive enough, we would say today that maybe you can get something. So she basically, you know, comes up with a ruse where she threatens him with, and she gets another man to deliver the message threatening some other guy who's now got the kids it's a long story it's complicated but it's it is interesting to read to see the links that of course any mother would go to to save her children
2: right and she essentially had to choose between the kids that that's kind of this is sort of the climax of it which was really wild i mean i i can't even imagine what that was like for her
1: yeah so you know which kids can you rescue which kids can you not rescue it's it's really tough and and you know the daughter who's the primary victim of sexual assault. You know, basically, she, she just gets away with her life, and sort of no, there's no justice there,
2: mm-hmm. but she
1: lives, and that's you know that's a good outcome. And um, but what well, the other thing that's interesting about this, because you know as a historian, we're not allowed, we cannot make anything up, anything mm-hmm. up. You know, if it's not, if we don't know it was raining, we can't say it was raining. You know, we're just real sticklers that way. It's, it's so important; it's our job to get the facts as unvarnished as we can get them, and and verifiable, but um, we're lucky because she wrote, before her death, she wrote it all out. This terrible story that, of course, no mother wants to say to the public, but she she wa- she felt some compulsion and she was she was a literate woman you know she she didn't know how to read and write and so she wrote it all down and after her death her her pastor the minister of her of her congregation found it in her papers and he thought oh my gosh what's the story so he went around to have it verified he asked talked to neighbors who did know and he talked to her surviving children who did know and they verified it and the interesting thing is he said we're publishing this as, as scandalous it is and, you know, cover your ears, you know, those of you who can't, this is too much to say. He said, but we're saying, we're writing all this because we want people to know that even in the worst circumstances, they can always rely upon God mm-hmm. to sustain them through the worst things. And, and that is how Abigail felt. But of course, the next generation would say, as Abigail Adams did, why can't women rely on the law too?
2: Right. And it would seem like a necessity. I mean, because, uh, you know, maybe not the religious sort of sentiments here aside, but I mean, the idea of kind of God intervening, I would say any religious person would say is pretty unlikely.
1: (laughs) Or, you know, I mean, they're right. There are all those explanations for what it all means and why humans are put to the test as they are. And, you know, what is free will? And okay, let's not go down that rat hole. (laughs) Right. Right. But that's, you know, that's the nature of American history. And that's that's 1776 all over up and down. Which is, you know, the law. We we you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and and protection of property need to be written into law, and you get to hold your government accountable for its ability, or take them to account for their inability to enforce that law.
0: And what's insane to me, by the way, is uh, some of the uh, the women featured in this book. I actually. Uh, not that I'm anyone in particular, but in school, I didn't learn about most of these women, actually, like uh, Phyllis Schallathley, the Grimke sisters. Like I, I was, I mean, it was upon reading the book. I love that, you know, I got to learn about these, even details about like Susan B. Anthony that I was not aware of at all too. Uh, But it's insane that this isn't something that's I guess, taught, or at least that I wasn't exposed to. I wonder how many people know about the figures in this book. It's really useful to, to learn about as far as that goes.
1: Well, thank you for that much. Um, Yeah. You know, one of the things I put in the start of the book, you know, like reasons to write the book, et cetera, is that, and it just, it just irks me because I was actually on the jury once for the Pulitzer prize in American history. So I, you know, I I know a little bit about the process and in 106 years of the Pulitzer prize for history, it has been given one time to mm. a book on women's history, one time. And the book is, one, it, it's wonderful, valuable, important book, really, really valuable book, and it's about midwifery. Now, you know, that's a great book, not yeah. to roll it down, but to say, so in 106 years, the only book on women that seemed to be appropriate was a book on reproduction. Like, mm. you, you know, like there's more going on there. So I think that there's this idea kind of on that, Women's history, and this is Women's History Month, is is kind of like a side dish, or maybe it's like a nice garnish on the main dish of American history. But when you actually put it together, and most of my books, by the way, have not been on women's history, I've written on kind of mainline American politics, but when you start to look at it, you realize so many aspects of how we are, how we operate as a country come out of... This effort to push for greater equality for women, greater equality in general, in general, and and this this is a driver. So women's history is not just like you know the parsley or the I don't know whatever the modern or modern equivalent is of dressing. Oh, you you help me out, but uh, nasturtiums. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just something to make the plate look pretty.
2: Right absolutely so I want to actually read another passage from your book because I think this is a good actually a great segue into our next topic so in this this passage Lisa writes while Beyonce bared her soul in her marriage women around the country began at first one by one but soon in the tidal wave of testimonies to make public their experiences of sexual harassment and rape shining a spotlight on a problem that every generation had grappled with since Abigail Bailey threatened her husband with exposure and extricated herself from an abusive embrace Americans once again found themselves shocked at the harms of sexism as survivors spontaneously launched the Me Too campaign of 2017. Dedicated women and men, journalists especially, dug deep to uncover abuse in sports, at work, and in private life. Their effectiveness came from a bountiful harvest of evidence that assault and misconduct were still shockingly common and reached as high as the presidency. Why did some men consider these practices acceptable? Why did so many Americans look the other way? The public airing of such questions helped to denormalize abusive behavior. Once again, a new generation moved the nation closer to its founding aspirations. So I love that. And then I would ask, how are we sort of starting now to answer these questions, right? So why did some men consider these practices acceptable? And why did so many Americans look the other way? Because I mean, right from the onset of your book, we're already getting to see that, that even with John Adams, as great as he was, he was like, well, you know, I like you guys, but I don't like you guys that much, right? And you kind of see that even though we have this perception, just like with racism, that racism is a thing of the past. So is sexism as well, but it's often the case that it's not that it's the thing of the past, obviously it's more so that it's kind of swept under the rug. So why do you think in terms of, you know, the kind of historical data, what does it tell us about some of the evidence about why some, and a lot of men do prefer to look the other way?
1: Well, you know, there's this old statement where you stand depends on where you sit mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, if you have a comfortable seat um, you don't have to stand up for things. And I think that it's, it's partly human nature. I mean, there, we have lots of evidence that, you know, if a person is in a situation of privilege, it's always easier to, to minimize the damages that other people experience, you know, not to walk in their shoes. In the case of gender, I, I think it's race to some extent too, but, um, it's different, but in, in gender, there's always been a fairly profound cleavage, that goes back in all cultures so in that sense it it precedes issues of race because long before humans started to you know walk out of different continents and onto other ones or get on ships and you know sail to sail the seas you've had this very profound distinction between the genders and so i think you know anyone in a situation of privilege tends to do that and what happens as we know i mean you sound like you experienced this in your own family alan is that because it's so normalized the the person of in less power tends to believe oh i'm actually i am actually just not as entitled as you are to those privileges and so it's my job to do my job and to you know work within the constraints that we have and and so people put themselves down um but the you know in a while, by the way a friend of mine wrote read this book who's an who's an editor author, you know, he's not an author but he's an editor so he reads a lot and he says this was the most optimistic book I've read in two
0: years.
1: (laughs) Like, like, oh gosh, you know, first of all, people don't like optimism. It doesn't sell that well. but, um, But I think that is the story. The story is that the three of us are sitting here having this conversation. And this conversation was not possible 50 years ago and so all of these things the, there is a scaffolding of rights but some of the last rights like the right to safety which is the one i explore in my my eighth chapter the last chapter the right to safety we have not gotten very far on i mean the right to vote like you know well we get we get up there and we slide back a little bit there's border suppression but you know it's all in all mostly women can vote mostly black people can vote et cetera. but when it comes to violence we've made very, very, very little progress. The CDC just last week released statistics showing that child abuse and uh, rape of people, the children, ch- women in America are most susceptible to rape between the ages of seven and seventeen. That's when the majority of people are raped for the first time. So we we don't have a good system, and we have yet to really commit. We have not really committed to. Um, To, you know, making that a a part of the history, our ancient history. So, you know, these things, they take a while. And, and there's a lot that has changed. And I want to chart that because I think if we take progress for granted, we lose it.
2: Hmm. And did you want to say something? So, and then in, in, as you kind of continued that chapter, what we're talking about now is something like Fox News. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I know this is going to upset some people, but I'm going to just say it, it's regressive, right? So a lot of Republican politics are pretty regressive. So what's so interesting is that we like to think of, uh, so the famous quote is, you know, the arc of justice. Uh, well, what was the quote? um The arc of justice bends forward or something along those lines. Uh, I forget what exactly it was. That but, sounds about right. Yeah, I think that's it. So, uh, so the idea is that there's this linear progression to what we're doing and we're constantly becoming better and sort of every successive generation is better than the next. And there's some truth to that. You know, if you look at Steven Pinker's work, I mean, a lot of what we're going through and a lot of our, um, let's say a lot of the struggles that we've been through, I mean, some of them to some extent are alleviated. And if you look back and you map, I don't know, life through centuries, obviously we're way better than we were hundreds of years ago. But what's so interesting is that it's like we take kind of two step step forwards and then like one step back, right? So you mentioned uh, Gretchen Carlson, which I definitely want to talk about and get into her situation, uh, how that kind of manifests with Roger Ailes and Fox News. And then what we're thinking about is more broad term or broader, uh, broader aspect of it, or more kind of long term, is we're thinking about now Donald Trump, the presidency. And to be honest with you, I remember when Trump was elected. I never thought that in my lifetime I would ever see something like that. I think all of us were so horrified because it sort of felt like we were, and obviously we didn't live through this period, but it felt like we were placed back into the 1950s. And even in a more abrasive way, because at least they were polite, you know, these people were polite in the 1950s. So you didn't even expect it to be so kind of outwardly brazen. Uh, But what's so interesting is, again, going back to this notion of progress, regress now seems like, I mean, it's gotten at least a little better because now Biden's the president and obviously things uh, are sort of getting back to normal, whatever that is. But it's even still we have like this section of American politics and this subsection of people who are now more outwardly sexist. Right. So uh, let's get into Gretchen Carlson and kind of her story and why that was so important for sparking the Me Too movement.
1: Yeah, and uh, just for quite getting launching right into your story, I think that we are of two minds about these things, in my mind, Alan. <laughs> I think that we tend to think, oh, onward upward, onward upward, and we sometimes criticize the teaching of American history as too much a story about, uh, look how great we were, pat ourselves on the back. But I actually think we also suffer from the absolute opposite, which is to say, oh, my God. This has never happened before. This is so terrible. This is so awful. I can't believe it. Like it's everything's as racist as it ever was and as sexist as it ever ever was. Like that's not true either. And so we need to be kind of grown up and sophisticated about these things. It's always true that there are no light switches in history. It does not like the light goes on or the light goes off. It's progress can always be reversed. It can be. That's why Mm -hmm. they had the dark ages. We'll talk about that in another podcast, but you know they lost the recipe for cement. Ancient Rome had the recipe for cement, and then it got lost for about a thousand years. So it is possible to have significant regression in history. Mm -hmm. But it's also the case that we've had a lot of progress, which we need to protect and preserve and appreciate, as well as understand that it's not always going to go our way all the time, and people will always resist change. So Phyllis Schlafly is an example of that. But let's talk about Gretchen Carlson, because so here's a woman know she gets her dream job which is to finally be an anchor on a major television news show and she was working for roger ailes and of all things she happens to be a former miss america and now when she worked for cbs cbs is like you know let's not talk about that because everything is going to think you're just a dumb blonde she's already blonde so you know they think you're a dumb blonde so we just won't talk about that much but roger ailes is like whoa Nice, you know. Let's um, that's, that's part of your that's part of your street cred with our crowd, and uh, but what happens is that she, um, you know, as if you've seen the movie or followed newspaper, she becomes the subject of sexual harassment by him, and you know, sexual <clears throat> extortion. Really, you know, if you do this, then you get that that kind of that very explicit form of sexual harassment where it's a quid pro quo, um, and she doesn't yield to that, but she's punished for it, and she loses her job ultimately. And the interesting thing I think there is that Roger Ailes shows this trend in American history that starts a little earlier than that, starts in the 70s, where there's a kind of anti-feminism where feminists become the new boogeyman. I mean, it used to be, as you said, the Ruskies or, you know, now it's, now it's back to being the Russians again. But anyway, during the Cold War, it was, you know, you, you, you blame the communists under the bed and then it became the feminists. And oh my gosh, the the ways that feminism is described are ones that Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a staunch feminist, would never have recognized. But, you know, feminists are Satan worshipers and, you know, baby killers and, you know, I don't know, all kinds of things. So Gretchen Carlson becomes she's not just the victim of sexual harassment, but Roger Ailes keeps his, in a way, hand around the throat of women in his network by what I call feminist baiting them. Well, you got a problem because you're a feminist. Oh, no, 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 Roger. I, I'm not a feminist. I just I just think you shouldn't be trying to you know, get into my pants. Oh, yeah, but you no, know, you're just a feminist. You're having a feminist. Are you having a feminist moment? Which almost sounds like, are you on your period and feeling framed? Yeah. So so she, of course, does stand up to him quite famously at, you know, she loses her job. She she risks her entire career um, and she never does. She never really rises again to that level um, in terms of broadcast journalism. But she is she does get a big payout from Fox News.
2: Yeah. And
0: and um, sorry, just no. go for it. one thing that um, is actually very interesting now that we're talking about this. Um, you know, a lot of people have this conception in their mind when they um uh, classify somebody or they identify someone as a feminist, right? They have this uh, picture they sort of paint in their mind of like, okay, this is someone who's uh staunch uh, women's rights and this sort of like black and white view of, um, what that kind of person might look like. But there's something that you articulate in your book that I think is actually that I'm not going to articulate very well, but I wanted to ask you what kind of women are feminists? Well, like, because for example, one thing I remember from the book is that, uh, Women, for example, like some women who are feminists, um, for example, wanted to uh wanted the right to vote or the right to earn, right? Essentially, but then also didn't necessarily want all of the rights. Like, for example, there were women like that. There were some feminists who were also um, uh, racist, right? Uh, Others, and and could you speak a little bit more on that? Like, what kind of women are feminists? Just to give sort of a, a broader picture.
1: Sure. Well, Leanne, I think that women and men who are feminists are people who accept as a basic principle that women deserve the same dignity and security, you know, physical security and you know, right to opportunity that men have, which is to say the world isn't perfect for anybody. But the idea that there should be equality in those regards. And so that's why I use feminism in a very broad sense, in the same way that you know thomas jefferson famously said in 1801 in his inaugural speech where he was trying to put out an olive branch to alexander hamiltonians and you know johns adamses of his world and he said we are all federalists we are all republicans what that meant is that we all believe in a in a united government federalism we all believe we're all republicans meaning we all believe in democracy popular vote and and not having a monarch monarchical form of government so i think that today you know, if Jeff, if a Jeffersonian type person were around, you know, I think the next Republican candidate or Democratic candidate needs to, both, I hope, maybe two women will run. Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, if we get Kamala Harrison, say Nikki Haley, we'll be taking race and gender off the table and just say, let's see, let's have a conversation here about what are the big issues. Hmm. So, um, you know, I think that, that that's essentially what feminism is. And then, as you said, you know, people will disagree, as we do on lots of things. You know, we all believe in a democratic, republican form of government. We all believe in the United the unity of the fifty states, for the most part. Um, and so, let's mm-hmm. just take that off the table. And I think that that's really what feminism is. It's not. And by the way, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a staunch feminist, uh, opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, as did Phyllis Schlafly, who was both a feminist and an anti-feminist. Um, There are women today, feminists, who oppose the right to abortion. There are many feminists who say, no, that's a fundamental part of reproductive rights, the right to life, liberty and property, and, you know, right to happiness. So we are always going to disagree on the implementation of the principles that we hold together, but acknowledging that these are principles we hold together Will help enable us to have better conversations, rather than saying, "Well, you just don't even believe that the races are equal," and then that just <laughs> that, <laughs> that is just people get more in their corners.
2: Yeah. And there's this other great passage where you write, the desire for belonging appears to belie the desire for autonomy. In Run the World, Beyonce sang, I hope you still like me, suggesting that even powerful girl, powerful girls want male approval. Such lyrics led some to question whether the songwriter could really call herself a feminist. One pundit wrote that Beyonce offered women little more than a banal brand of beginner feminist, ec- feminism, expressed in inoffensive pro-girl anthems that failed to challenge trenchant gender ideals. Yet the critique, yet the critique itself was problematic. Were beginner feminists not cool enough for professional ones? Should inoffensive pro-girl anthems aim to be offensive instead? Must heterosexual women reject the gender ideal of marriage to win approval from self-satisfied (laughs) censors? So I love that. So for a lot of times what happens with idealism, which is really great in its initial stages, it kind of becomes co-opted by extremism. And you sort of understand that because, I mean, obviously we kind of try to overcorrect for the reason that the problems are so extensive. And you think, you know, we can't give up even a little bit, right? So it's like, uh, if we're looking at sort of patriarchy, and we're looking at patriotism, nationalism, chauvinism, we're looking at these uh, sort of constructs and these social structures as really negative. So the the thinking goes, if we're going to create a kind of more utopic society or a utopic society, we have to do away with them altogether. Obviously, that's not very realistic. And so what happens with so here's what happens with someone like me. Um, I actually don't really like extremism in any form, whether it's uh, feminism, anti-racism, whatever it is, even though I actually do really like, admire Malcolm X, but he's pretty much one of the exceptions. So I like that when you bring up Beyonce, uh, the way you kind of talk about it is that Beyonce has a right to choose. She has a right to live the life that she wants to live. If she wants to get plastic surgery, she's allowed to want to get plastic surgery. If she wants to marry a man who's 12 years older than her, she's allowed to marry a man 12 years older than her. So I like that there's this conception that under the umbrella of feminism, we can all kind of be equal and we can all have a voice in that. If you don't want to marry, if you feel like you don't want to have plastic surgery, we can still live in a world where women still elect to do that. So, can we now talk about Beyonce for a bit and talk about, in inter- turn, essentially how she fought back against some of that extremism? Because, I mean, obviously, even though she does have a white platform and she's always going to have an audience, I mean, I'm assuming it was pretty hard for her to hear attacks, especially for somebody like Bell Hooks, who I'm going to assume to some degree she must have admired.
1: Yeah. So, Bell Hooks, who's a very well known, recently deceased um feminist of the second wave, a- black woman as well. Yeah. Um, she you know she was a big critic critic of beyonce you know calling her you know, not just faux feminism i'm trying to remember the net word now but uh i mean real strong she called her a
2: terrorist yeah
1: a terrorist i mean it's just, it's just, it's just like nasty honestly um and so you know here's this eminence you know this academic eminence who's got all these impeccable credentials and the list of books Law as long as her arm and telling this young, you know, 18, 19 year old woman, well, you're just, you know, you're not good enough to be a feminist. And I think that's so gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm a teacher, my God, I would, you know, I would never think to say to my students, well, you know, your under your generation's understanding is not the proper one of, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, mm-hmm. So I, and, and what's so wonderful about Beyonce, who, by the way, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, more more likely to listen to Beethoven than Beyonce, to be honest. And in fact, pretty much that's always true. But (laughs) so it's not a musical preference. It's just when you look at historically, who's advancing the marker? She's my face of feminism in that chapter, the person who is doing the things that actually push a generation, a whole generation of people in new directions. And part of her direction is, as you just identified so well, Alan, is that this idea that you, you get to have a choice. So her, she had famously, she had a, a world tour um, right after she got married to Jay-Z, whose last name is Carter. Mm-hmm. And she called it Mrs. Carter's Tour. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh, talk about retrograde, you know, Mrs. Carter. But in the backdrop, she has emblazoned across the backdrop of this huge state, stage, one word, feminist. So I'm a feminist and I'm, Decided, I'm taking my husband's name. I want to do that. I'm going to do that, and I get to do that. And you know, you want to criticize me for that? Well, you go ahead. And a sense also there's an intersectional element of that comment as well on her part, which is that um, you know, for for black men and women in America before abolition, marriage was illegal. There was no marriage, and so you could be married in your mind and heart to somebody, but the person who had enslaved you could at any moment separate you and and actually tell you, you have to go with this other person. I'm selling you down here and I need, I need more babies out of you though. So, you know, you're going to be with this guy now. So for, for black women, for someone like Beyonce to say, I'm Mrs. Carter,
2: you know, mm-hmm.
1: like good on you. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just live life the, how you think gives you most freedom and dignity and respect, self-respect, respect of others. And, and, and by the way, Beyonce has also always been extraordinarily supportive of gay people and queer people, and she's she's a big you know uh, contributor to to organizations which help people um, you know who don't define themselves in traditional ways. So she does it both. She does it all.
2: Right. And it's such a difficult issue because I mean I could see it on the other perspective. So with somebody like well what's the topic actually? It's with somebody getting and the topic like plastic surgery. So the idea there is that well if we're doing this for the male gaze, I mean doesn't it kind of sully the water for all of us? And I mean it's interesting because in a way it sort of does because the idea is that well yes if one person uh, gets plastic surgery one person attempts to look younger. I mean obviously now it's kind of it shifts the playing field in some way and that's always going to be true. But the way I kind of look at it and maybe this is a naive perspective obviously I could just be wrong. But but I think that in terms of finding men, if that's, let's say, the goal in particular. It is the male gaze, right? I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think that it's just that you have certain men – Oh, you have all men who are looking for people to look younger or all women to look younger. And you're not – all men don't like big breasts and all men don't like big butts, you know? So my thinking is that – I mean, again, I know the environments differ and it's not the same thing everywhere. But I do think that there's a way for everybody to sort of live together, you know, in this uh, kind of, you know, in the proverbial sense of uh, – like everybody getting along, you know, where we can have, again, different versions of feminist, f- feminism where, yes, one, let's say, feminist person, uh, you know, man, woman, whomever, this elects to get plastic surgery. And then another one says, well, that's not for me. And then in terms of matching, you'll have one, you know, man or woman or whomever who would say, oh, I don't care. This doesn't bother me. I don't you don't need plastic surgery. I love you the way you are. And then another person might say, well, actually, I mean, I pref- I like this. I love you. I think you look great. Right. And the person says, well, great. This is what I wanted. This is what I paid for. But yeah, it's <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's so interesting again, that we're so divided on this issue and the thinking is that one person could be a bad feminist because they do something like that. And you know I, then the question is like how do we define bad feminism and who's to really say what bad feminism is? And you know we have these waves, right We have set first wave, second wave, third wave and you know these uh, these kind of thinkers they've adapted their thinking and then they've modified the thinking for the environment. And I wonder do you think that this is kind of what Beyonce in the way is doing it that she's sort of modifying feminism in the new or for a new generation in a new way?
1: Well, I think she is. When I looked at her, not just her life and the way she's lived her life, and <clears throat> how she's treated other people, which is an important part of, you know, who who an individual is, <clears throat> but it's also her lyrics that what what she's actually promoting. And she promotes one of the main, one of the biggest themes that she's always promoted is the idea of body positivity. You know, pretty hurts is the name of one of her songs, you know, being pretty hurts when, when people are always shining a spotlight on what you don't have exactly right. <laughs> you know, you're pretty, but you know, your teeth are just, they could be, you know, they could be different. So she's always been an advocate for body positivity, for the financial independence of women, for equality in relationships between men and women, which is what she explored really in all of her whole corpus of her musical history, her musicology, if you will, but, uh, especially in her, our um, famous album Lemonade, where she talked really exposed the infidelity of her own husband, which must have been extraordinarily painful to do and so brave of her, so brave and, and kind. You now she could have just kicked the bum out, you know, but she's she wants, how do we get on the same page? You know, do yeah. we just all say, well, in that case, go away, never want to see you again. How do we get back to a place where we treat each other with humanity? So gosh, I think I've now totally lost the question now because that was such <laughs> a big one. But, you know, hey, so
2: the yeah, new the, generation, right? So an adapted feminism for a new generation,
1: yeah. So well, the other <laughs> thing here, I think, is that I do think it's just human behavior. It's uh, they say it's primate behavior that you know, primates want you want to figure out what group you're in and then what's your status within your group. And yeah. so we have different ways of ga- gauging status. And uh, you know, actually it was John Adams who said something to the effect. this is a paraphrase. He says there's a natural aristocracy <clears throat> of height, <laughs> beauty, um. Uh, birth, uh, intelligence, and some people get more than the others. And the job of government is to make sure that the people who have less, you know, are not so utterly um, unprivileged by that, because it's just the fact. You know, if you're tall, if you're, you know, if you if you can run fast. And if you're stronger, if you're prettier, if you're handsomer, those are things that just affect us all. So, yeah, I always think of it's going back to this thing of plastic surgery. It's a little like Taylorism, which is, again, an American a labor practice of the late 19th century, the kind of speeding up of the lines of the assembly lines. Right. And, if you may, and some people are really good at it. And of course, all the other workers are like, I hate you. I hate your guts
2: because
1: mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> yeah. you, you do it faster. And now I have to speed up, too. So that happens. I mean, I also think that happens to some extent between men as well, certainly, where men sizing themselves up in relation to other men. And, you know, if you put lifts in your shoes, I have to put lift in my shoes, you know, and then it's a race to the top.
2: Right. And I think right. what's often lost, and this is, I mean, it's sort of okay, because I understand a lot of people don't. So in terms of, let's say, somebody having what's called body dysmorphia in clinical terms, or like an eating disorder, a lot of times you don't really get to peek behind the scenes. So life does look perfect for that person. But so because so, I'm a therapist, so I treat uh, different types of people, uh, narcissism, eating disorders, uh, different personality disorders, whatnot. And so oftentimes, again, what's lost is sort of the suffering that these people have. So yes, on the one hand, you could say, well, who is she to have, you know, bigger breasts? Or who is she to have, oh, a smaller nose or whatever, right? But talking to, in this case, obviously, because we're on the topic of women in plastic surgery, talking to some of these people, you really see how they suffer. And the other thing is also, I think, again, another thing that's lost besides the suffering, but what's also kind of lost behind the scenes is that it's often not good enough. So the person will get plastic surgery and they'll still feel like they're somehow less than. So the thinking sometimes is, well, who is she to look better or who is she to be this great singer? I love that in your book, you touched on how Beyonce actually suffered and struggled with with the, her her co-workers her friends uh you know kind of you know the blurriness of those relationships how she struggled with her father uh how she struggled you know with her mother and seeing the dynamic that they had so the idea is that nobody here goes goes without scars there's nobody who's pain free so going into let's say something specific like an eating disorder again often people think well oh she's so lucky she's so skinny i've talked to many women with eating disorders man they're not that lucky so a lot of the thinking and a lot of sort of the i guess you could call it the mindset is it's not so much much of I'm better than, even though that's definitely a part of it, but it's a small part of it. One of the, the major part or the major kind of preoccupation or obsession is, oh my God, I'm fat. Uh, oh my God, I'm not good enough. Oh my God, my bo- my boyfriend, my husband, whomever is never going to love me. Uh, these pictures look horrible. These people think I'm a terrible person. Uh, these people both think I'm ugly and they also hate me for trying to be pretty. So a lot of that is you know, what we talk about, when, or what you talked about, or what I hope we're going to talk about in terms of what Beyonce went through. So can we talk about some of her struggles, especially with her band name? Bandmates, and also now that we talked about body positivity in terms of how she came to accept her body image, and also why she struggled with it, and how she isn't maybe the lucky one to somewhat conceptualize her as being.
1: Yeah, well, I think most art comes out of suffering, right? Right. Yeah, you know, they say you know the cracks are where the light gets in. Right. You know, if, the, if your cracks in your soul is where the light gets, in. if you if everything's easy, you don't ever understand suffering. You do You you're unable to speak as an artist or a writer or anybody to, you know, the great issues that people struggle with. So in her case, um, you know, she has an interesting situation because her mother is, uh, you know, I don't remember the exact, you know, she's part black, part white, part Cherokee Indian, part this, part, that part, come from Louisiana. Louisiana, as we know, is always, (laughs) Louisiana is a mixture of things. And so Mm -hmm. her mother has green eyes. Her mother has relatively, has straight hair, I think um and so beyonce had a a mixture of racial backgrounds that really um you know changed things for her and made it hard for her to um you know uh made it hard for her and so when she was a little kid she would get teased about having long hair and for some african-american women it's it's very hard to grow your hair beyond a certain length um that's hard for some white women too so um they're not able to uh um, you know, she, she she knew she didn't fit in, and so she would always wear her hair up, and she'd wear things on top of her hair because she was going to get teased about it, and mm-hmm. so it was very very frightening. Um, and so, you know, she was worried about getting beat up, and so she when she was a kid. Now you think of Beyonce today; she she always wore baggy shirts. You know, you see that in a lot of girls. You know, they're kind of big baggy t shirts, baggy pants. And she didn't have a lot of friends because she encountered the phenomenon of mean girls because mean girls is a real thing. And so mm-hmm. climbing up on the back of somebody else, you know, is a way that people often who are at the bottom of society get ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jay-Z, her husband, I mean, I'm sure one thing that must have bonded them was sort of knowing that how hard it is. It's not just the dominant society that you have to that you struggle against and with. It's also your own folks because people are sometimes clanging on each other's backs to get ahead. And so I think that's one reason why, I mean, what I found myself moved by in Beyonce's work is her attitude towards other women Mm -hmm. really has the strong theme of girls need to be nice to girls. And that's, it was really, you know, it's not just finger pointing at men or anything else. It's like, what, what are we doing? How are we treating each other? And so that I mentioned this one, uh, you know, music video, Pretty Hurts. And it shows girls at a beauty pageant. And she was a beauty pageant as a person, as a kid. And uh, and they're literally clawing at each other, trying to get ahead. And, and it's just the ugliness of that competition within uh, an oppressed group, if you will. And um, so she's, I just, I just, I was so impressed with Beyonce. And I've got to tell you. <laughs> So when you talk about why you select who you select to write on, like I thought for sure I wasn't going to do Susan B. Anthony, who everybody would think is the obvious choice, which is why I wasn't going to do Susan B. Anthony. Right. And Beyonce, everybody's like, well, now why would you choose Beyonce? You know, there she is in her low cut shirt and her high, high shorts and, you know, sashaying around. And surely that's not feminism. But when you look at both of those women, how, how representative and how interesting and also how unusual they were in their generation, what leadership they exercised, mm-hmm. both be Anthony and Beyonce have exercised extraordinary leadership, moral leadership.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, what do you think is the, the next step in uh, sort of um, feminist patriotism in, in the sense that like we've come so far right in terms of um gender equality in the country but um yeah i'm curious to think what's sort of the next step to sort of or what are what are things that we could do to ensure uh, at least now that that gender equality continues or at least at least it's
2: maintained as far as it's come right
0: well and then evolves i'm sure there's a next step right could be politically or socially i suppose yep
2: well
1: you know i do think it's you know and this is part of the my shtick in the book, I do think it's really important for us all to say we are feminists. Mm-hmm. I started out the book by talking about I talked with three women colleagues who had both all were in positions that were only a result of feminism, had positions of status that women would not have had in, in an earlier generation. I said, so are you guys feminists? I mean I asked them separately individually and they're like, oh no, no. I'm like oh my, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I didn't say to them, you are sitting here because of you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg and because of Susan B. Anthony and because of you know, any number of women, Martha, Coteta, you know, various women who've made it possible for us all to be here. Um, So I think that normalizing, just saying feminism is an important part of our American history. It's an important part of who we all, how we define ourselves as a nation, as a people. 91% of Americans say they do believe that gender equality is very important. So in other words, 91% of Americans are feminists, but we still resist this idea of, well, I don't want to be one of them,
2: Mm you know,
1: like these and that's, that holds us up from them taking Leon the next steps and the next steps are really important ones. I mean we really need to keep pushing on representation in government in the sense that for example I you know I mentioned a few minutes ago because it just crossed my mind the other day and I thought well what if it were like Kamala Harris and like Nikki Haley and blah 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 know, who knows what will happen but right now there's this mantra of, well you know you can't a woman can't get elected we tried that once. <clears throat> yeah we tried it once she actually won the popular vote but you know a woman can't get elected so wait a minute <laughs> the lesson of hillary clinton is don't put a woman up but that is what pundits are saying i mean new york times you know washington post go read some articles friends you'll you'll find that mm. and so it's very important that it, it, this is not about payback it's about becoming who we want to be um and we also know that one of the reasons why democracy in general works better than all the alternatives as winston churchill said he said it was the worst of all systems except for all of the others that have been tried mm-hmm. um, and the reason for that is because the more heads and more perspectives you have on a problem the more likely you are in general in the aggregate to get good solutions it's it, sociologists have found this again and again that's one of the problems with you know doing yes men you know the kind of like i don't want to hear any input because then you just get your own cockamamie ideas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Alan can tell you better than I can that when people stay only in their own heads, it's, it's not always a good place to be.
2: Yeah, And even now this reminds me of kind of uh, Megan Kelly's incident or just the experiences that she had. So it was interesting that when she goes on the late night talk show, she says, well, you know, I don't want to kind of brand myself as a feminist trying to walk that sort of thin line or that tightrope between, in this case, sort of republicanism or, uh, I mean, maybe it's unfair to call it that, but let's say chauvinism. And then obviously, you know, what feminism actually is. And clearly she is a feminist all throughout. But then finally, when there's this sort of breaking point, I mean, I don't even know would she label herself a feminist now, but it seems like she probably would have, or at least would at this point. Um, so my thinking is what's so interesting about that is now going back to Fox News and that story, is that in order to protect themselves, it seems like what was happening is you know, for I, maybe Gretchen Carlson did this too, where they kind of disavow the label of feminist, feminist or feminism and they say to themselves and to other people they say, well we don't need these labels, these labels aren't important, which is obviously not true because I mean the labels kind of signal to other people what actually is important. And it also signals to them that it's not fair for a person, in this case a group of men to take that label away from us just because they kind of sully it with these uh, connotations connotations that don't necessarily belong there. So with again, going back to Megyn Kelly, I love that you now as you're, as the story kind of progresses and the trajectory of it changes, we now see this person going from, well, I'm not much of a feminist, uh, but I kind of believe or subscribe to some of these ideals, to well, I actually now kind of am, and I can see how sort of the branding of it is really important, and I could see, and you know, we go into the story about uh, her linking up with other people, reaching out to other people, uniting with them and saying, hey, guys, you know, if we kind of, I know she didn't say this specifically, but I think the kind of message is, is if we label ourselves feminist, we could kind of work together to overcome or override this oppressive system. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it is easy to say, and we all do, oh, I don't want to label this or that. But, you know, we have the seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues. And we we use a word like truth to, dif- uh, to distinguish it from um, falsehood. a a truthful person from a liar so we we care about words words are how we get around in the world and navigate the world so i i what what has happened is that there was actually very deliberate effort to undermine the word feminism um which is just craziness but it's you know by people who want to protect their own position and even though the word feminist wasn't you know around at the time of john adams john adams was one of the first you know he said when abigail said you know could you remember the ladies when you write the laws And he said, I cannot but laugh, you know, and then he went and said, oh, you know, the enemy's trying to stir up rabble rousers of all kinds. And they're, you know, they're encouraging enslaved people. He didn't say enslaved, he just slaves. And, you know, Indians uh, and and renegados of all types to, you know, to rally against the revolutionary (laughs) government, which by the way, now sounds kind of good, doesn't it? But back (laughs) then, you know, he thought that was a terrible thing. So we tend to put down, it's an ad hominem attack is always the easiest and cheapest insult, right? To get at mm-hmm. your point by saying, and you're ugly too. So by the way, which was always also said about feminists and you're yeah. ugly <laughs> So that's that actually just fits. Um, but uh, I think that, I don't know if Megan Kelly has ever come back and said, yes, I am a feminist, but I think probably when pressed, now she might.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but there is There's a penalty to pay, that's the problem. There's a penalty to pay for saying it. But, you know, I think that the women in the Republican Party, which, by the way, was the first party of feminism, Republican Party endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment before the Democratic Party. It was the party of Lincoln, remember? So it was the part that was against slavery, not the Democrats who were the party of slavery. So they all switched places uh, over Mm -hmm. the course of the century. But still, Mm -hmm. um, it's really important for Republican women of all women and Republican men of all men to stand up and say to the bullies in their party. You know, who are trying to harm their own party, you know, no, these are our values and we are fighting for those values. So that's always the thing in in any political party, it has to police itself. And if you, if you um, police by just giving away to bullies, then you really are, you know, you're signing your own death warrant.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting how, for men, a lot of us uh, are afraid of using that term. So, I had a conversation with one of our mutual friends, and this was a while ago. So, it's, he doesn't have this necessarily, he doesn't subscribe to this anymore. Uh, but I, so he was like, Well, I'm not a feminist, right? And I'm like, Okay, so what are you then? And he said, Well, I believe that women should have equal rights. I believe they should have equal pay. I'm like, Okay, cool, bro. You're a feminist. And he's like, Well, I don't want to use that term. And so, but it doesn't make any sense, right? So, it's like, it's so interesting that this group of guys, again, you know, men co opted this term and said and made it into a dirty thing. That now we're not able to kind of signal to each other that right this is what i believe in this Wait, is why
0: that's so leon what you're saying right now is, is important because yeah uh that that's also why i wanted to highlight that uh that definition of feminism earlier right because uh there's that that idea that comes up to your mind when you hear that uh word it feels like it's like a loaded like a loaded word but i'm so happy that we're talking about it on the podcast because that's going to sort of elucidate this idea that it's it's actually way more complex it's way more nuanced There's 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 something else going on there when you actually like identify as a feminist. It's not like this idea of like, uh, just this this thing of uh oh anti men comes to mind right. or whatever starts to come to mind. Right. It's like no, I I I just I, I'm interested in um e- uh, equality. I'm interested in uh women earning as much as men. I'm I'm interested in women having a strong political voice. If 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 we're a meritocracy, then uh if this woman is saying that something that is uh totally um beyond what this uh competitive like whatever her competitor is like if it's a man if what she's saying is better than what he's saying that that idea is stronger than his idea let's go with it who cares if she's a woman or a man right and yeah so I'm happy we're talking about yes feminism kind of doesn't like,
2: have to be a dirty <laughs> word is what we're saying and the fact that it yeah. is a dirty word is literally by those who are complicit in making it so for a nefarious reason or purpose yeah
1: Ab- absolutely and we can chart that historically and and part of that is that sort of natural human fear of change and so my book is about feminism but it is also about anti-feminists because in every generation in abigail adams generation there were women of eminence who said oh well women should have no rights and that happened in the 19th century. Uh, you know, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Angelina Greenpea. A lot of people encountered yeah. those women who said, oh no, women have too many rights already. So in every generation where there's been forward progress, there have been people who've also said, oh, we don't need that progress. And if we have it, it'll undermine the family, et cetera. And so I do think that it is very, very important that we just understand that it's a very inclusive term. People tend to think, It's an exclusive term like like there are all these like, you know, fine points you got to match up with. And if I don't match up with that, well, I'm never calling myself a feminist because I don't believe in blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas rather like democracy, it's a very inclusive value. And people who are believe in democracy will have very different ideas, uh, whether because of their gender or their race or the part of the country they live in or whether they're poor or they're rich or they're from the you know, all kinds of reasons why we are very diverse people. Um, and one of those is by gender, but uh, but we have certain values in common. And that's why I think now, especially when we feel so divided, that's the moment where we also have to say, but okay, so what do we still have in common? Because now yeah, we don't want to go to hell in a handbasket, right?
2: Yeah. And I love that. And as we start wrapping up, this is kind uh, of be my kind of final point, especially going into, uh, this is interesting because it's sort of, uh, it's we can kind of map it to your book because this is the last part of your chapter of the last chapter. Uh, the, we're talking about the Larry you know, Sar case. So I wonder, do you think that if let's say feminism were a more broadly used term, if let's say more people identified as feminists, more people, you know, going back to the idea of signaling, right? We were able to quickly signal to each other, well, I'm a feminist, you're a feminist. This is sort of our group or our team. This is, kind of, you know, our idealism or or kind of our ideology better yet. So do you think that it would have been easier for the gymnasts in that case? And I mean, it's a lengthy story, obviously not to get into it too much, but in terms of like uh, how the gymnasts responded, do you think if they knew that there were more people potentially on their side, that if there were more feminists in the world, would they have felt safer coming forward with those accusations?
1: Yeah. So the Olympic gymnasts who were abused now, by the way, I think that's such an interesting point. It's one doctor and it's 500 girls and young women. So how many men are bad guys? We don't know. This is one doctor who assaults 500 individuals. So it just tells you how often people who are criminal can get away with so much. So you know, Abigail Adams was right. Most men don't think this way and wouldn't do such grotesque things. But that's why it's important that the men who don't think that way stand up and be counted. That's, we we women really count on you. You know, and some of the best feminists have always been men. You know, Frederick Douglass, you could write a, a, you know, people think of Frederick Douglass as an abolitionist, but Frederick Douglass was one of the most important American feminists of all time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I had another people I was trying to focus on said I could have done him easily. Similarly, Susan B. Anthony was one of the most important American abolitionists. She was the one who organized the drive behind, the petition drive behind the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and put the Emancipation Proclamation into actual law in America. So we tend to you know, think, oh, we think of so-and-so as this and so-and-so as that, but really these, there's a lot of overlap here. So what would happen? Would the Olympic gymnasts have felt safer? I think so. You know, I think um the more we all first of all come forward with stories of abuse and say that's not normal, that's not right, a, a girl might hear of something like that and go, Oh, so so that this thing that's happening to me, I I could say something about it without having the letter I stitched on my blouse for the rest of my life, or you know, being thought of as being the cause of the of the crime. So I think that feminism would help us. I really would, or let take an example, you know, I always thought was so grotesque. Um, when Donald Trump was a candidate and, you know, the stories came out about his groping women in, in, in his own USA, you know, America, the USA pageant, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, al- alternate to the, um, you know, Miss America pageant, Miss USA, you know, and also his, his blatant, you know, his admitted comment, I can grope women, you know, I can grab their pussies because I'm a celebrity and you get to if you're a celebrity. I think mm-hmm. if more women, Republican women had said, wait, you know, we we all know, of course, we're all feminists. So how does that stack up? But if you don't have that sense of category in your mind, you might think, well, who can I really object to that too strenuously? Are people going to think I'm a feminist if I chub chat? And am I going to get into trouble with some other part of my constituency? So we can all say, listen, we really believe in equality. Now, how does that fit with abortion rights? How does that fit with, you know, Uh, sexual assault, you know, how do we measure behaviors? If we understand what our basic values are, and it'll just give us a better place to have conversations about these things.
2: Yeah. And to end with a quote from your book, again, uh, I would say something a little, I'm not, I'm going to kind of reframe it or restate it. So we're not looking to condemn, we're looking to redeem. So I love that. Hmm. All right, Alan, final questions for Lisa, before we wrap up?
0: Yes. If we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that?
1: Well, um, I'm going to tell you, my full name is Elizabeth, but I was never called Elizabeth ever as a kid. (laughs) You know me as Lisa, but it's Elizabeth Cobbs. So, you know, ElizabethCobbs.com, you know, look for me on Twitter, Elizabeth underscore Cobbs, I mean, Instagram, but of course, you know, all the regular outlets and the book is published by Harvard. You can buy it from them or Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, you know, whatever. Give me a shout out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hide.
2: hide. (laughs) Absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. This was such an excellent episode.
1: Well, thank you. I loved it too.
2: Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. All right.
0: That was awesome. So uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, where it sees underscore podcast, like subscribe, hit the the bell bell on on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.